We're going to be looking tonight at a feast celebration that's actually not up here on the calendars of the Feast of Israel. You don't see it up here. And, uh, but I want to call your attention to John chapter 10, verse 22. That's where we're going to be at. John chapter 10, verse 22. It says here, And it was at Jerusalem the feast of the dedications, and it was winter. It was winter. So the last feast that we actually looked at was the Feast of Tabernacles uh, back a long time ago, it seems like now. And um, we're going to move, and, and Tabernacles is right uh, right there. You can see it up on the right. And we're going to move down here to the month of um, Keslev. You'll see it's about uh, probably six to eight weeks later this event is going to take place where Jesus is here in verse 22. So it's not long after what's happened in John 6, 7, 8, and 9 that we looked at. So we get into John chapter 10. It's probably from um, the verses long down about 18 and 19, right around in there, things sort of close. And then about eight weeks later is the next time we really hear from Christ. So... That's where we've gone to. We've gone from the Feast of Tabernacles down into the early months of Keslev. Um, and it's the winter months now. And uh, it's interesting that Jesus makes another trek back to Jerusalem. And you'll notice there it says it's for the Feast of Dedications. Um, and uh, this is a feast that's not really celebrated here when you think of the calendar of the Feast of Israel. But it is an important time in the history of Israel. Does anybody know? In fact, they've just celebrated this holiday, what this would be. So what if you were Jewish, what did you just celebrate? We just celebrated Christmas, and it always happens to fall about the same time as our celebration. Hanukkah. Right. So Keslev would correlate with our month of December. And uh, so it's uh, winter there in Jerusalem. And Jesus has come back to Jerusalem to celebrate Hanukkah. And so tonight we're going to talk a little bit about Hanukkah. And, um, and, and most of the things that he teaches in this trip back to Jerusalem, this trip back to the temple, really sort of relates back to his talk at the Feast of Tabernacles. And we're going to see that here in just a moment. A lot of this little exegesis that we have here really ties back in to the Feast of Tabernacles and the things he's covered eight weeks ago. So it's almost like he comes back to the city, back to the temple, to reiterate some things that he had taught sort of at the very end of Feast of Tabernacles. Um, and so really before we get into the Scripture, we sort of, we've sort of got to give some history and uh, background of the Feast of Hanukkah. But before we do that... Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and Savior, again, we come thanking You for this day. We thank You for the opportunity to be able to open the Word of God. And I pray, Lord, tonight as we do, that it might be just an exciting time. And uh, Lord, any time we have the privilege of opening God's Word, I believe it all to be exciting because the Bible is living. 
I pray tonight you'd make it alive to us. You'd make it exciting to us, Lord. Make it live in our lives so that we can even uh, apply these things practically in our walk with you. And tonight that we can learn more about you, Father, and who you are and about your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray tonight that you might uh, be with Ignite and Pastor Jonathan and all the, the youth staff up there, uh, up at the youth center, Lord, make it a great night for them. I pray for Awana tonight and uh, just for the boys and girls that are there and uh, Lord, just their excitement tonight over on the game floor and in the council times that will go on, Lord, may the boys and girls really not only learn and memorize those scriptures, but may they apply them to their life and may it make a difference, Lord, in their lives. So tonight, Lord, we commit this time to you. In your name we pray, amen. This Feast of Hanukkah uh, that often coincides with Christmas um, has been celebrated since 168 B.C. So that was it was being celebrated even before the time of Christ. And so that's why when Christ shows up here in Jerusalem, this isn't a brand new celebration. It's been going on for some time. And uh, but we have to we have to understand the history of this holiday and why it's important to the people of Israel. Um, in the year 169 B.C., uh, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, was a Hellenized ruler of Syria, and he was a pretty ruthless person. And he had gone down into Egypt on a campaign and had some great, great victories in Egypt. And when he and he wanted to continue this campaign all the way through Egypt and just conquer all the land there. But the, go, the Roman government was really in charge. And so they sort of put a stop to this. Um, his, his background was Syria, and uh, they didn't want him to, to continue uh, these um, campaigns down in Egypt. Um, so they called him back from Egypt, and he came back to Palestine. And when he came back, he was pretty torqued. He was pretty upset at the Roman government, pretty upset because they didn't let him continue his march through Egypt. And so when he arrives back in Palestine, um, he, he's upset, and he's really going to take his wrath out on God's chosen people, the people of Israel. Um, and so when he comes back, he returns with great wrath, and uh, he enters Jerusalem and destroys a, a really good part of the city. But not only does, does he destroy the city, he comes in to the temple and uh, he invades the holy temple. He carries away the golden altar. He carries away the candlesticks. Um, he carries away all the golden vessels and all the other sacred treasures. And to show his contempt against God and against the people of Israel, he sacrifices a pig on the altar. And not only does he sacrifice a pig on the altar, uh, but what he does is he takes and he cooks a pig in the temple, and then he takes the broth of that pig and pours it all over um, the scrolls that the people of God had been keeping of all the Old Testament writings. So even in a sense, a defilement of God's Word. Um, and then he goes and begins not only to conquer Jerusalem, but conquer other cities around Jerusalem all throughout Palestine there. And he even gathers together the priest and commands them to do the same thing, to sacrifice pigs 
on all of the temple altars all around Palestine. So he is just running ruthlessly through the area of Palestine, causing all kinds of uproar, um, all kinds of turmoil amongst the people of God. <clears throat> but one day, um, an, an enforcement officer of Antichicus arrives in a small township in Modin, three miles north of Jerusalem, and the command is assembled to sacrifice a swine there. Same thing that had been done down in Jerusalem. And so he goes to do this, but there is a guy whose name is Mathis or Matthews, and he, he was called Mathis the Maccabee. And Mathis the Maccabee had five sons. He was from a priestly family, faithful to the Lord. And so this father and five stalwart sons and uh, hated this decree. And so what they did was they killed this man that had been sent to their city. And uh, not only that, but they went and found Epaphavus and killed him also and began to, in a sense, uh, really cause an uprising. But the Syrians, their enemies, and the enemies of their god soon found Mathis and, and killed him and his son Judas the Maccabee along with this. Um, they fired... Uh, let me pick this up now where I, where I was. They fought in the mountains outside the va in the valleys and uh, almost in guerrilla-type warfare. And, and finally, they drove the Syrians from Jerusalem. And together, um, the disloyal priest who had listened to Epiphysus, they drove him and they drove him out. They drove all the loyal, the unloyal priest out, and uh, they demolished the polluted temple of God. They thought, you know what? We can't keep these temples. They've been demolished. So these men who had these men from Israel, they actually went ahead and destroyed everything because they felt that it had now been made unholy and they shouldn't use it. So then on Keslev, the 25th of December, 164 B.C., they rededicated the temple of God amidst a great rejoicing and consecrated a new altar in place of the old. Only they did not know what to do with the stones of the old altar. So sacred and precious to them, but at the same time polluted and unfit for the offering of the sacrifices. So they decided to heap them together in a corner of the temple and wait for the coming of Elijah, the Messiah, to tell them what to do with the stones. Um, the Jews, when they um, hidden in one of the nooks of the temples, the Jews found a small jar of consecrated oil, uh, some oil that had not been used um, in an unholy way. So they took this oil as they began this um, celebration, and uh, it was sufficient for one night. That's all that little nook of oil would do for one night. But supernaturally, what happened was that little nook of oil that should have lasted one night lasted for eight days. Eight days. And so each night, they were able for eight days, they were able to light the menorah to bring... Um, worship to God. And so the temple, it was decreed that for eight days, eight candles should be lit in every Jewish household, beginning with one on the first day, two on the second, 
and progressively until the eighth day. So all of this happened about eight weeks after the Feast of Tabernacles was this eight days of celebration where for eight days they would light these candles. That's what Hanukkah is really all about. It's how God supernaturally provided oil for them to be able to light these the menorah there in the temple. That's when Jesus shows up. Eight weeks after um, the Feast of Tabernacles, He shows up for Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedications. It says in verse 23, And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. So He, like I've said before, where does Jesus always go when He comes to town? To the temple. He always goes to the temple. And so again this time, He does that. He goes to the temple. Um, then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us doubt? If thou be Christ, tell us plainly. So again, the Jews meet him there and they want to know, you know, prove to us again that you're really who you say you are. Prove to us that you're really Christ. Jesus answered them, I told you and you believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I'll give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So, they're saying, Lord, you know, here we have a question for you. And, uh, you know... Are you really who you say you are? And again, remember, they always came back to the same thing. Are you really who you say you are? Are you really the Son of God who you claim to be? And so he says, and this is the key here, Jesus answered them, I told you and you believed me not. Now when did he tell them this? He told them this back at the Feast of Tabernacles. So to understand here, you've got to go back to... Um, a little bit further back in this chapter. So back up, if you would, to verse 9, where he is giving a discourse at the feast, at the very end of the Feast of Tabernacles. He gives this discourse. And uh, so let's look at this discourse and let's look. And uh, what he's really saying here, if I could give a title to this little discourse, it would simply be this The Good Shepherd Would. The Good Shepherd Would. Now, what would the good shepherd do? So we're going to see from this portion of Scripture what the good shepherd would. And let's look at it here, and you're going to see several things that the good shepherd would. Verse 9, I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pastures. The first thing, and you can jot these down, the first thing the good shepherd would is he would be a savior. He would be a savior to the sheep. And, and you'll notice that's what he's saying in verse 9. I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pastures. And so uh, we know here that he is the good shepherd who can, he is the one who heads up the sheepfold. He is the one who opens the door. He is the door into the sheepfold, if you would. And so the first thing he says, I will be a savior. I will be a savior. He shall be saved. The second thing he says, um, as you read on down through verse 10, 
The good shepherd first will be a savior. The second thing is the good shepherd will supply abundantly. Look in verse 10. The thief cometh not but to steal and to kill and destroy. I come that they might have life and that they might have it more what? King James says they are more abundantly. So the good shepherd came not only to give life, but he came to give abundant life. And the little book that I have people work through after they come to a saving relationship of Christ is called The Abundant Life. And I love that because I really believe that, listen, we should be having an abundant life. He just didn't come to save us. He came to give us what? An abundant life. And I'm not talking about abundance of things. I'm not talking about a health and wealth gospel here. Listen, there is no greater wealth than to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no greater wealth than to know Christ in a personal way. You know, I just I want to say this. One of the things I really appreciated about Dr. Sheard and spending time with him is Dr. Sheard is all for education. He's all about giving kids a good education. But he realizes something very important. You can give the kids all the education you want, and if you don't give them a foundation of Jesus Christ, you've given them nothing. That's what I really appreciate about him. And, and why? That's so biblical. If I give kids an education and I don't give them a foundation in God, what I'm going to produce is a fool, according to Proverbs. But if I give them what? If I give them Jesus Christ and I help them to have an abundant relationship with him, I am going to make them a, a girl or a boy of wisdom. That's what an abundant life is, and that's what he, he has come to give us. He's come to give us not just life, but to supply an abundant life. So first of all, he's the good shepherd who would be a savior, and he's the good shepherd who would supply abundant life. There's a third thing that, that he will do here for us. The good shepherd, if you'll read on down through here, it says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep. The third thing is the good shepherd would be sacrificed. And we know that. We know that the good shepherd would finally go on and be sacrificed for our sins as we celebrated communion this morning. Um, it also says up in verse 18, and we're going to sort of jump around a little bit here, the good shepherd would be willing to suffer. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down, or I lay my life down myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Now we might ask ourselves, was it the Roman soldiers who really murdered Jesus? Well, yes, but he did what? He allowed them to do it. The Bible says he what? He laid down his life. The reality is he could have. That song we sung, it's an old song. He could have called 10,000 angels. That's so true. But he didn't. He chose to lay down his life. The good shepherd, he'd be a savior. He'd supply abundant life. He'd be sacrificed, and he would be a willing sufferer for you and me. But not only that, the good shepherd would be the shepherd of the Gentiles. Look at verse 16. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be of one fold and one shepherd. 
Now, if you're a Gentile, you ought to take and you ought to circle that verse. How many of you are Gentiles in here? You should have raised your hand unless you're Jewish. Okay. Because we are, if you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. And, and, and this verse to us means a whole lot. It really does. He said, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Now, who is he talking to? He's talking to the people of Israel. And he's saying, listen, besides you, yes, you're of my fold, but I have other sheep too. They're not of this fold. And those other sheep that I really believe he's talking about here, he's talking about us, the Gentiles. Over in Romans, he talks about that we will be engrafted. We will be engrafted. I know nothing about fruit trees. But I do know that you can take, and I've seen it done, that you can take a branch from one type of fruit tree and graft it in, and it will produce fruit on that tree. It's engrafted in. It's put into. And so what he's saying that, listen, I, as a Gentile, have been engrafted into Israel. So, so what a privilege it is for us to be engrafted in. But here he says, we're not only engrafted in, but also, I am his. Other sheep have I. I'm one of his sheep. You're one of his sheep. And um, he says, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. That's where, whether we're Jew or Gentile, we are all what? We are all one in Jesus Christ. And so, in the church, he really took the church, and whether we be Jew or Gentile, he has made us through the church, and who, we're going to talk about this next week. Who's the head of the church? Is it Joe Dukes? Better not be. Is it Dick, is it Dick Vaughn? No. We're, this is our very first point in our message next Sunday morning. Who is the head of, of Mount Calvary Church? God is. God is the head of this church. I'm not the head of this church. Praise God for that. But God is the head of this church. And so we're all part of the church, not just the church Mount Calvary, but there is a universal church that he is the head of. When the Bible talks about church, it talks about the universal church and the local church. And uh, so he's saying through the church, we've been engrafted into Israel. Through the church, we're, we're really all one family, whether we be Jew or Gentile. So even though there was... Two different sheepfolds. He took those two different sheepfolds and he, in a sense, put them all together in what today is called the church. So, so here we have the shepherd. The shepherd would what? Be the shepherd of the saved Gentiles. And not only that, there's one more thing I want you to see about this good shepherd. In verse 17, Therefore does my father love me, because I lay down my life, and here what here's what does it say? It's exciting that I might what? What? Take it up again. What's that talking about? It's talking about the resurrection. Exactly. I laid down my life so I could take it up again, so I could be resurrected. Here's a picture of the resurrection. So when we think about the good shepherd, the good shepherd would what? He would be a savior. He would supply abundant life. He would be sacrificed. He'd be a willing sufferer. He'd be the shepherd of the saved Gentiles. And he would be resurrected. And so what, what he says there is he's trying to remind them of all the things that he's already told them. Go back over to the Feast of Dedications now in verse 
25. And so Jesus answered them and told you and, and told them, I told you, and you believe not, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. So again, he's referring back to what he had said at the tabernacle. My sheep hear my voice, and they know them, and they follow me. So he, he's saying, listen, sheep, what would they do? First of all, first thing they would what? They would know the master's voice. So the first thing about the sheep of God, that they know his voice. Now again, I'm not a, a, a um, shepherd at all. I don't know that much about shepherding, but I've read quite a few books about shepherding. As I was studying through the 23rd Psalm for a series of messages I did one time, I must have read three or four books about shepherds. One of the most interesting things to me is this thing, the sheepfold. <clears throat> and so what you would do is you would bring your sheep into town or just outside of town, and there would be a sheepfold where you could leave them so you could go in and get a good night's sleep. And uh, so what you would do is you would put your sheep into the fold. And then the next shepherd would come along and he would put his sheep into the fold. And then the next shepherd would come along and he'd put his sheep into the fold. And the next shepherd would come along and he'd put his sheep in. So we're, we're, there could be eight, nine hundred, a thousand sheep in this sheepfold for the evening. And then the next morning the shepherd would come, he would come to the door, and he would yell, and he would have a certain yell. Each shepherd had his own yell. And he would then begin to turn and he would begin to walk and guess who would follow him? All of his sheep. That's phenomenal. It's, it is interesting that all of his sheep would make their way through all of those other sheep and they would follow him. And so the first thing he's saying, listen, listen, you people of Israel here. Listen, if you were truly of me, you would know. You would know who I am. And the very fact that I proclaim to be the Son of God, and you don't even accept it, you're not even one of mine. Oh, wow. That's pretty tough, isn't it? I mean, that's sort of really getting in your face. Just the fact that you guys don't believe me, if, if you really believe me, you'd know. You know I I'm, would be the Son of God, I, that I am Jesus Christ. You would know that, but you don't even know that, he's saying. Because my sheep know my voice. But if ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, and said unto, my sheep hear my voice and know them. And what's the second thing? They follow him. They follow him. Now this is important, and I think that those two words are so important. God's sheep follow him. And I want to camp out here a little bit tonight. Because I think this is really important, and I've been really thinking about that this week, because in a person who truly comes to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior will follow Christ. And I'm going to say it again. A person who truly knows Jesus Christ as their Savior will follow Christ. Now, I'm not saying that we can't come to know Christ and walk away. Let's think about this for a minute. Let's think about David. King David, the Bible says, was a man after God's own heart. Doesn't it say that? Okay. 
let's just stop for a minute and let's just put a box around David's affair with Bathsheba. So I want to put that in a box. So, if I said King David, and I said, let's look in this box to find out about King David. In that box, we would see an affair, and what else? Murder. So, if I was to judge King David just on that box, what would you say about him? Unsaved. Exactly, Jack. I'd say he's unsaved. But now let's take that box off and let's look at all of David's life from start to finish. You would see what? You would see a man who is after God's own heart. The realization, any of us in this room who claim to know Christ as our Savior, if you just boxed in some areas of my life, you might say, whoa, there's no way Dick Vaughn saved. But I praise God that God doesn't look at it in a box. Okay, He looks at the whole thing. Now, but it does say here, I can't get away from this, that a person who's saved follows God. So here's my point. If a person's truly saved, and you look at all of their life, there ought to be a pattern of following God. There will be some times when they weren't following, but overall, there will be what? Overall, there will be this pattern of righteousness. See, go back to 1 John. Here's the point I'm trying to make. The Bible says, <clears throat> if I am truly saved, let me stop. What's the whole purpose of the book of 1 John? What is the whole purpose of that book? There's one purpose of 1 John. Let's turn there so we can find out what the purpose is of 1 John. I am, I am going someplace with this, but I want you to see this tonight. But I, I wanted to stop because I think these two words, it's important for me to remind myself of this, just like it is. So turn to the end of uh, 1 John. Chapter 5, verse 13. If you don't have this underlined, you ought to underline it. And it's you should underline in your Bible. I, I, if you looked at my Bible, it's written all over. Chapter 5, verse 13. These things have I written unto you. So he's telling you why I've written this book. Here's the whole purpose I've written these things to you. That believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may what? Know. Circle that word know. That you may know that you have eternal life. And that ye believe on the name of the Son of God. The whole purpose of the book of 1 John is so that we can know that we have eternal life. I don't have to guess. I don't have to wonder. I can know that I have eternal life. Jesus, does, Jesus doesn't want me to walk through life wondering, am I saved, am I not saved? Oh, I'm not sure. Jesus wants you to know that you have eternal life. He wants you to know. So he's, the neat thing is he gave us a whole book. He gave you a whole book so that you can know that you have eternal life. So how do I know then that I have eternal life? That's for you to find out. Because here's what you're going to do. This week, you're going to, I, sometime this week, I want you to read the book of 1 John. And I want you to tell me from the book of 1 John, what are the evidences that are there that you know you have eternal life? 
Okay? You have to find them. I'm not going to tell you. That would make it easy. I can tell you right now what they are. Often people will come to my office for counseling and, and they'll say, well, Pastor, I'm not sure that I'm saved. You know, when I look at my life and I say, well, let's, let's make sure. Let's go to the book of 1 John and we're going to go through. We go through chapter by chapter and there are about seven or eight evidences in 1 John that stick out that prove to you that somebody's saved. They're there. My son, 17 years old, pastor's son, walked into my office after a Wednesday night service. When first he came and got me, he said, Dad, I need to talk to you back in the office. He's 17 years old, grown up in my home, been made a profession of faith, walked the aisle, I baptized him. I said, Dad, I need to talk to you. Brought him into the office. We sat down. He said, Dad, he said, do you know that message that you always preach? He said, I, I've heard it so many times. He said about knowing that you're saved. And you know all those evidences that you give from 1 John? He said, well, tonight, Pastor Bill preached your message back in youth group. And he said, Dad, I'm not saved. He said, I started to do a survey of all those evidences. And he said, Dad, I have to be honest with you. Those evidences really aren't in my life. He said, Dad, I need to get saved. And if you ask my son today, he'll tell you that when I got saved, I was 17 years old in my dad's office on a Wednesday night after a youth group when I finally really was honest with myself about these evidences being in my life. I'm going to say something, and you might disagree with me, but I believe the church is full of people who really aren't saved. They're going to miss heaven by 18 inches because they have it all up here, but there's never really been true salvation. Because the reality is this. If you go through 1 John and these evidences aren't in your life, you're not saved. Because remember, a true sheep of the shepherd will follow Jesus. And you're going to see that, and we're going to take those two words, and we're going to look at those more next week. So I'm sort of taking a little parenthesis here because I want us to really get this as a study together. And we're going to, we're going to stop because 1 John really helps us to understand what it means to follow Jesus. If you would ask me quite a few years ago what I thought it meant to follow Jesus, I'd tell you, well, it means dressing in such and such a way and wearing my hair if I have it in such and such a way. It means following a set of rules and regulations, but we're going to find out from First John. That's not what it's talking about at all. So we're going to find we're going to find out what does it really mean to follow Jesus? Well, First John really teaches us because it gives you some things that have to be in your life if you're really following Jesus. So we'll look at those things next week, but you have to find them. And if you don't find them, I don't know what we're going to do next Sunday night. We're going to be in bad shape. So you have some homework this week, okay? You have some homework that you have to do. Now, I, do, I, I don't want you to come to next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock and say, oh, man, I didn't do my homework. I'm not going to go tonight, okay? Even if you don't do your homework, you come back next week and you cheat. And you listen to what the other people did, Okay? So that's my challenge. Read 1 John. What are the evidences? Again, 
purpose of 1 John, so that you may know you have eternal life. Okay? So how do I know? I've got to back up and go through the book to look for those evidences that prove I have eternal life. They're there. I want you to find them, and then we'll go through it next Wednesday night. Let's pray. Or next Sunday night. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for this night. We thank you for the time to be together. Thank you for the study. And as we've just sort of taken a little break here to go just a little direction for a little while, but Lord, to to understand when Jesus says to those Jewish people, Lord, if you're truly one of my sheep, you will follow me. Lord, help us to understand what it means to follow Jesus. Lord, you made it clear. You put it in 1 John so that we know what it looks like to be a Christian. These evidences have to be in my life. I pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I'll put it to you like this and I'm going to let you go. I have a garage in my house. And I walk into my garage and I shut the garage door and I stand there and I say, I am a car. I am a car. I know I'm a car. That's all I'm going to say. I'll tell you more about it next week.